Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. That was Tommy Morello with Let Freedom Ring. Tom begins each episode inviting us to ignite and launch our freedom dreams. I'm Bill Ayers, and Malik Alim and I are here with you for our seminar on freedom. We're broadcasting as usual on the Freedom Frequency, and we're tuning into the big and exciting questions. What is freedom anyway, and how do we get free? How can we name this fleeting historic moment as accurately and clearly as possible? We're gathered together in this fugitive space, looking uneasily at the world we've inherited and busy in projects of repair and revolution. I'm talking to you today from Chicago, home to many indigenous peoples and nations, including the Three Fires Confederacy. As justice seekers, as freedom fighters, organizers, and activists, we work to remember and honor a history of stolen land and resources, a history of genocide, and we pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle toward justice. Our first regular feature is A Moment is In. The Quiet Contemplation of a Poem. Today we read To Posterity by Bertolt Brecht. Indeed, I live in the dark ages. A guileless word is an absurdity. A smooth forehead betokens a hard heart. He who laughs has not yet heard the terrible tidings. Ah, what an age it is when to speak of trees is almost a crime, for it is a kind of silence about injustice. And he who walks calmly across the street, is he not out of reach of his friends in trouble? It is true, I earn my living, but believe me, it is only an accident. Nothing that I do entitles me to eat my fill. By chance, I was spared. If my luck leaves me, I'm lost. They tell me, eat and drink. Be glad you have it. But how can I eat and drink when my food is snatched from the hungry and my glass of water belongs to the thirsty, and yet I eat and drink? I would gladly be wise. The old books tell us what wisdom is. Avoid the strife of the world. Live out your little time, fearing no one, using no violence, returning good for evil, not fulfillment of desire, but forgetfulness passes for wisdom. I can do none of this. Indeed, I live in the dark ages. I came to the cities in a time of disorder when hunger ruled. I came among men in a time of uprising and I revolted with them. So the time passed away, which on earth was given me. I ate my food between massacres. The shadow of murder lay upon my sleep. And when I loved, I loved with indifference. I looked upon nature with impatience. So the time passed away which on earth was given me. In my time, streets led to the quicksand. Speech betrayed me to the slaughterer. There was little I could do, but without me, the rulers would have been more secure. This was my hope. So the time passed away, which on earth was given me. You who shall emerge from the flood in which we are sinking, think, when you speak of our weaknesses, also of the dark time that brought them forth. For we went changing our country more often than our shoes. In the class war, despairing, when there was only injustice and no resistance. For we knew only too well, even the hatred of squalor makes the brow grow stern. Even anger against injustice makes the voice grow harsh. Alas, we who wished to lay the foundations of kindness could not ourselves be kind. But you, when at last it comes to pass that people can help their fellow people, do not judge us too harshly. That was Bertolt Brecht's poem, To Posterity, accompanied by a composition written by Hans Eisler. Eisler and Brecht were longtime collaborators and political comrades after fleeing Nazi Germany in the 1930s. 
Which brings me to our second regular feature, a stream of consciousness free write, where we encourage you to shake free from whatever frenzied or frantic editor slash critic perches on your shoulder, commenting disapprovingly of your every sentence, and write a short, authentic piece from nowhere, the nowhere of our freedom seminar, the nowhere of the underground, and the nowhere of utopia. This is a moment to put words on the page, no editing, no second guessing, inviting surprising new awarenesses to pop into your head, unexpected, unannounced. So here's your prompt. Considering Hans Eisler and Bertolt Brecht's collaboration, imagine your dream collaborator. Who would it be with? What would you collaborate on? How can you make it happen? Okay, start writing. We'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. It's time for our guest speaker series, Activists, Authors, and Artists After Hours. Ah, where we visit with comrades and co-conspirators who can help us think more deeply about the world we share, name this political moment with some clarity and hope, and take the necessary steps toward creating an irresistible movement toward freedom. We release our most radical imaginations, and we ask both what's going on and then what is to be done. I'm delighted today to be joined by two guests. First, Cliff Mayotte, who's the Education Program Director with the unbelievable organization Voice of Witness, which we'll get into, and Claire Kiefer, a longtime colleague of Cliff's, uh, oral historian and mitigation specialist with the Georgia Capitol Defenders. It's great to have you both here. Great to it's be great. here. It's great to be here, Bill. Thank you. Thank you. Um, let's begin by talking a bit about the book you two co-edited called Say It Forward. Maybe you talk a little bit, give our listeners a peek into the book, what you're trying to accomplish and what what is in there. Yeah, I can just start off, uh, Bill, just by saying a little bit about the organization uh, that the work you know brought about, that the work inspired. Um, uh, Claire and I used to work together um, I'm still the education program director of Voice of Witness, and we're a nonprofit based in San Francisco, and we work to advance human rights by amplifying the voices of people who are most impacted and fighting against injustice. And we do that through two main programs, our oral history book series and our education program. And our education program creates free downloadable curriculum uh, for all the books in the Voice of Witness series, as well as we use the Voice of Witness education program uh, to share and teach and collaborate with other folks around our methodology for oral history and connecting it with social justice and thinking about what does it really mean to amplify unheard voices. And so uh, Claire and I and our work together in the education program had so many opportunities to collaborate and so many uh, schools to work with and so many individuals who were doing oral history with a social justice lens. And we decided that we needed to demonstrate and share all that we had learned um, from all these folks over the years. And so we created a, a DIY book for oral history and social justice based storytelling called Say It Forward. Give me a hint that what's first of all, before we go any further, give the uh, website so that people can contact Voice of Witness and contact you. Yes, you can contact us at Voice of Witness at www.voiceofwitness.org. Okay, perfect. And they can get free downloads from some of the projects that you've done and they can get copies of books and. Yep. Everything is, is orderable from our website, uh, downloadable curriculum, other oral history resources. Um, it's, it's all there, as well as information about the other, uh, the 21 books in our, in our series. 21 books. Say a word about 21 books. G give us a, a, a hint of the range of what you all have done, because it, it staggers me every time I look around. And I look around one day, and it's 15 books, and the next day it's 20 books, and I don't know how you guys do it. But give people a sense of the vast range of that. Yeah, and, and Claire can, can share a little bit about some of the books as well. But um, I just want to start it with our, our, our most recent book, um, which is called How We Go Home, Voices from Indigenous North America. So you have that, that latest book, and we can go all the way back to a book called Inside This Place, Not Of It that Claire worked on, which is narratives from women's prisons. 
um, and six by 10 stories of solitary confinement, Underground America, um, which is a collection of oral histories uh, focused on undocumented American workers, um, Chasing the Harvest, looking at um, migrant workers in California agriculture. And we do have a couple of international books in the series too. Um, Hope Deferred, which is looking at narratives of Zimbabwean lives in the, in the aftermath and the reality of, of Mugabe's regime. And so you really get a, 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 real, a real range. And do you have a book? Do you have a book on Palestine? We do. Palestine Speaks, Narratives uh, of the Occupation. Right. So um, that, must, uh, that must impact your donor base. But I want, uh, before we go into that, I want uh, Claire to say a word about Inside This Place and how you, how you accomplished that book, which is an extraordinary book. Um, credit goes to the narrators and to the brilliant editors of that book, for sure. Um, but I first got involved with Voice of Witness through that book because I went to graduate school many, many years ago with uh, Mimi Locke, who is the executive director of Voice of Witness. And she and I were both, we both uh, went through the um, MFA program at San Francisco State, Mimi in fiction, and I did poetry. And she knew that during that time I was working in the prisons. I was uh, teaching high school at Balboa High School in San Francisco. I was teaching through a program that served children of incarcerated parents. And um, I was teaching one night a week at San Quentin State Prison poetry workshops. So Mimi knew that that was sort of where my focus was. And then when the idea was in its germination stages for Inside This Place, she reached out to me and asked if I would want to you know, do some of the interviews, help out on that book, um, which which is a collection of oral histories from people who are held in women's prisons who have endured um, things like medical neglect, involuntary sterilization, all kinds of abuse, um, sexual abuse from guards, that sort of thing while incarcerated in women's prisons around the country. So, uh, so that's how I first got involved. And I think that that was, I, I wanna say it was 2009 um, I think the book maybe came out in 2011, and these are these are lengthy projects. Um, the, the for everything from the, you know, the generation of the idea to finding the people to work on it to partnering with organizations to locate narrators um, and ensure that you're finding people who who really want to share their story, um, and then transcription and editing and multiple drafts mm -hmm. and all of that. And so they they end up being um, a big feat, a worthwhile feat. But uh, so, so that is that is how I first got involved with Voice of Witness, and then came to work with Cliff um, a few years after that in the education program. You know, you use the word narrators a couple of times to talk about the people who are um, offering their oral histories, but that's quite intentional, isn't it? Why do you use the word narrator? Well, really, the, the, the point of, of oral history is, is to humanize history, and for all of us to take history personally. And you know, for us, uh, interviewee or interview subject is very dehumanizing and very clinical. Um, and it makes it sound very, that the, that the process is very extractive and gonna be painful for somebody. And so for us, uh, a narrator is just uh, narrating their life experience, narrating their stories. They're the experts of their own experience. And so they are narrators with a treasure trove of, of stories and memories to share. I also think interview subject is so specific. It's like that's someone who is being interviewed. That's one specific facet of who that person is in that moment. And voice of witness as an oral, you know, given the voice of witness methodology, there's there's space to explore someone's entire humanity, and and that's the goal. So I think that narrator allows a bit for a bit more complexity. Yeah. It also sounds, go ahead, Cliff. I'm sorry, I just wanted to add uh, to what Claire was saying that um, in our books that our interviews, there's kind of a, a birth to present moment scope. So you're hearing stories of challenging stories and, and people uh, sharing traumatic experiences, but you're also getting a whole range of their identity and not just being identified as a survivor of something or a victim of something, um, but you know, uh, a narrator that has you know, rich and deep and, and complex experiences. And agency and ethical outlook and yeah, absolutely. Um, but you, you know, you, you, I want to go back to inside this place, not of it, and some of the other 
uh, books that you've done because these are people who are in vulnerable, difficult situations. So I guess I have a couple of questions. One is, how do you check yourself um, to be sure that you're not, you know, kind of approaching them as a tourist as a, or as a gatherer of somebody else's stories that, that has no value to them? How do you check yourself? What are the ethics of this? How do you get entry into those communities? And, um, you know, and do people want to talk to you? Do, do people actually want to share? I think one thing I would say to, to start off is that, you know, Claire had mentioned that our, our books, our projects take, you know, quite a long time. And all of this work from beginning to end is about relationships. It's about building relationships. It's about nurturing relationships and maintaining relationships. And it's not a sort of, well, we're putting out a call for narrators and you know one week later we're sitting down and, and we're interviewing you. There's, there's, a, there's a lengthy process and there's a building of, of mutuality, there's a building of trust, um, there's a building of, uh, of agency and issues of representation and we explore our own, you know, our own positionality. You know, who am I in relation to these stories that I'm hoping to hear and how does that impact uh, the storyteller and how will that impact the listener? And then ultimately the, the audience or the reader of one of our books. And so it's really, there's a lot of ethical issues to address uh, and acknowledge before you sit down for the interview or before you know, those, those interactions take place. And so it does take time and it, it is based on relationships and it is based on you know, how can this process be mutually beneficial. To, sure. to give a specific example with Inside This Place, um, the editors, uh, worked with or you know forged connections with different organizations around the country that served the population of um, people who we were interviewing for this book. And so, for example, one of the trips that I did for that book was um, down to a, a place called Aid for Inmate Mothers, um, which was, I believe, in Montgomery. It was in Alabama. I think it was located in Montgomery. And um, and they they serve women who are currently incarcerated um, and who are getting out of prison and reconnecting with their children and that sort of thing. And so the folks at Aid for Inmate Mothers had relationships, pre-existing relationships with a, a whole bunch of these women and had been able to talk to them about the project and show them some voice of witness books and explain what we do and why. And they had a better understanding of who authentically really wanted to share their story. And so we were able to rely on those relationships to, um, to find people to, to speak with. Mm -hmm. you, you, you all have worked with Audrey Petty, a friend from here in Chicago, and she's currently working on a project called Market Box. I don't know if you've heard about it, but, but this is a, a, a neighborhood group that was part of the farmer's market down here on the south side of Chicago. And when the pandemic hit, um, they began taking boxes of food to the families that were regular participants in the uh, in the Saturday market. And then they got the idea, because Chicago is facing this phenomenon of um, black people moving out of the city, the city becoming gentrified in certain ways and and black folks being pushed out. And it's kind of a dramatic drop in the black population. So they began taking oral histories of from their market box community of folks leaving. And they stress the fact that it really is about relationships. It's about something that goes much deeper than just a Q&A into a tape recorder. And I've just been very impressed with that. I, I think that's something that Audrey is particularly <coughs> adept at. Um, you know, when I think about the book that she did for Voice of Witness, High Rise Stories, um, about you know public housing in Chicago or ex-public housing in Chicago, um, the, the relationships that she developed through that book, uh, I know that she, she maintains relationships with the narrators from that book to this day. In fact, every time I talk to her, she's mentioning, you know, this narrator, or that narrator, oh, I talked to so-and-so, or we got together. And so um, she really embodies that. And I'm, I'm really glad you brought her into the, the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, I'm looking at the section of your book, Say It Forward, where you have field reports and just a couple to mention, and maybe you'd um, you'd explain more, uh, you know, how you see these and how you locate them. One is called OG Told Me, um, and, and that one struck me as really, really um, 
fascinating. Maybe you talk a bit about that. And then uh, Unsettled, Relocating After Katrina. Maybe you could talk about those two field reports. You know, Claire, if you want to talk about OG Tolmy, because I know you spent some time with, with Penn Darvis, you know, getting that chapter together. We love Penn Harshaw. He is brilliant. Mm -hmm. He is mm -hmm. an incredible writer and journalist and creative brain um, <clears throat> in Oakland. And he had been working on his greater project, OG Told Me, for a while before uh, he started he, he started working on this particular chapter for our book. Um, and he, it had had many different lives. Um, he, essentially, Penn was going around talking to elder people uh, elder black people in Oakland um, and just listening to them. And that that was sort of his only agenda was just to, you know, collect wisdom and, and talk to people. And this had looked, he, Penn had been a teacher. And so this had looked different depending on what, you know, what he was doing in the classroom. And um, there was a, a website that he had for a while. And then he, um, you know, molded it into a, a a written, a more written form for this book um, and really kind of took us through his process and, you know, what his, what the ethics of, you know, him being both an insider and an outsider, depending on, you know, things, race and being from Oakland and being, you know, all these different things. But also he talked about how he's a young man and he was talking to older people. And so there's, he really, I thought, explored the complexity of insider outsider dynamics and uh, was able to demonstrate really beautifully how it's usually not that simple. Mm -hmm. And was very transparent about the whole, the whole process. What about the Katrina stories? Yeah, I can talk a little bit about that. And, and I also was remembering something in, in the chapter that, that Penn wrote about, um, given the relationships that he would have with some of the elders uh, in the African-American community in Oakland that he was interviewing. I think he was writing about one gentleman and he said, this gentleman always does this like always does, you know, such and such. And then the next time that that person saw Penn um, said, no, no, I didn't say that. I said, I sometimes, uh -huh. <laughs> and that was, I sometimes do this. Uh -huh. And that was really, really important. And, and, and Penn was like, you know, sorry, I'm, I'll change it. Is that part of your methodology? The, the checking back with the, with the narrators? Absolutely. It's, you know, to, to, Every, every editor, or every project lead approaches it a little bit differently, but it is a collaboration. Mm -hmm. um, and there is a sharing of drafts and sharing of stories because we, we really want to make sure that um, from the narrator's perspective, we're getting it right. Mm -hmm. That they're being represented in the way that they want to be represented, in the way that um, they had intended, mm -hmm. you know, in, in agreeing to, to participate in the project and, and share their oral history. And so that's, that's a huge part of, of what we do. And we also, uh, unlike uh, a lot of journalists, unlike the majority of journalists that, that are out there working now in all kinds of different mediums, it's like we will, a narrator will have uh, an opportunity to look at their story before it's published. And it's like, did, you know, is there anything else? You know, I mean, the process could go on and on, but there is a moment where kind of like, okay, is, is this right? Did we get it? Did we get it right? Are you, are you okay? still with this, with this going out into the world. So it almost kind of part of our ethics is kind of almost like a rolling consent. Mm -hmm. It kind of like there's a checking back in at various stages in the process, just to, to make sure that, um, that we're doing it in the way that we had all agreed to, that but we're sharing those agreements. Yeah, and there is a certain amount of editing and, and curating that you do as well though, right? I mean, you, you, it's not just all raw tapes, right? I mean, you are editing, curating and checking. Absolutely. All of those things simultaneously. Um, and yeah, in our, our book series, is, as you know, Bill, it's that they're edited with a very literary sensibility. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, they are not, they are not raw transcripted. It's not, it's not data. It's not a, you know, it's the difference between like our managing editor, Dow Tran likes to say the difference between reading a police report and reading a story about it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But you, go ahead, Claire. The tension of wanting to having a prioritizing someone's authentic voice in and their story in in the exact way it was spoken and their their you know the the character of their voice and the character of their story and at the same time editing it in a way that's really compelling to readers so it will have maximum in, impact mm -hmm. but i think you know cliff and i and also everybody at voice of witness 
approaches it through, you know, by asking questions such as, is this authentic to the narrator's voice? Or is this, does this feel true to the narrator's voice? Mm -hmm. And I think if, if that question is guiding the editing process, then it, it's likely to achieve its mission. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of Studs Terkel's first book, Working, and uh, the first interview in that book uh, is a guy that Studs, I think, spent three and a half hours with drinking in a bar, and he, he gets three pages out of it, but he did take the three pages to the the narrator and said, is this, is this your... Because it was just a kernel of what he had said, but suddenly he becomes a philosopher, and and uh, it's incredible, you know. So, Turkle in many ways popularized this form, um, certainly here in America. But um, yeah, I think that that's. But but you know, I want to come back to Katrina for a minute. But I, for, before we do that, I want to. You made a, an interesting distinction. So maybe talk again a little bit about the boundary between journalism and oral history, between reporting and oral history, between academic writing and oral history, as you see it, what are the boundaries or what are the tensions? Well, there's, there's definitely points of connection and, and points of, you know, major divergence. I think one of the distinctions that we make is that in oral history, at least as, as we practice it, we've kind of flipped the script on who sort of controls the experience. Um, and a lot of journalism and a lot of reporting, uh, that interviewer or that reporter is in charge and is looking for a particular story, a particular angle, a particular soundbite. Um, and in oral history, we, we kind of flip that. And the narrator and the storyteller really guides the experience and guides the story and, and you know, what gets shared, how and how and when and why. So that's that's one major distinction. I know there's, there's others. Maybe, Claire, you can... Uh, share other, other distinctions that come to mind to you. I think that that's a, that's a great sort of distillation. I also think that when you consider what the immediate purpose of what we think of as journalism versus what something like oral history is, um, of course, journalism is a huge field and there's you know immediate news beat uh, journalism. And then there's like you know, incredible long form journalism that really kind of digs deep. But I think that um, the, we, we don't have the immediacy of like, there needs to be a report on this story tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Um, and therefore there's so much space to really um, explore and go deeper and go back for second interviews and clarify things and, you know, have this back and forth collaborative process, um, which is just, you know, a luxury of the forum, I think. Yeah, but I think it's also an ethical stance. I mean, I think it's what you want to do. Cliff, you were going to say. Oh, yeah. And, and just, um, it's really interesting, too, uh, another distinction that, that people make between journalism and reporting and oral history. It's like, well, you know, oral history is really cool, and these are great stories, but, you know, some of this might not be true. Mm. You know, and there's this, this, this sort of weird dilemma and this tension around, quote, unquote, the unreliable narrator, mm. you know, and, and, it, and it's, you know, oral history is not good at like proving a thesis or proving a point or making something right or making something wrong. It's as Claire said, it's really, it's about an exploration and an excavation of, of time and memory and culture and experience. And um, it's really interesting to me. It's like, well, somebody might not remember it exactly the way it happened, but the way they remember it is very, very meaningful and mm -hmm. very much a part of the story and who that person is. And so that's a, an interesting distinction that I think a lot of academics, you know, sort of like, well, I'd love to be teaching oral history in my advanced history seminar, but it's like, it's not legit or it's not legit enough or the academy has not deemed it so. Mm -hmm. I know the academy has always had trouble with groups like yours and, and with work like Studs's, but one of the things I find refreshing in really all of the books of yours that I've read, and, and certainly in a lot of Turkle's work, is that it wants to get the contradictions and the complexities. It wants to capture the silences. It does, it's not, so when, Claire, when you were talking about journalism, I've often felt, had the experience even of being interviewed, and you get the feeling the story is already written. They're looking for authenticating details. He was wearing blue jeans when I spoke to him. Okay, so you were there. But it's not that the story, you know, the story doesn't turn on that. It's um, it's an odd sensation. But I'm thinking suddenly of Studs Terkel's uh, The Good War. You know, and I think it's in some ways 
in opposition to the, the, the trope of the greatest generation. Because when Studs does an oral history of World War II, he gets into Japanese internment camps. He gets into uh, Jim Crow. Um, he gets into the violence and the horror of, 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 of it and doesn't romanticize. His thesis isn't the greatest generation. It's more like, let's look at the contradictions. It's worse. It's more than that. And I, I think that's a great parallel and a great distinction when we're talking about what connects oral history and social justice and, and, a, and a social, you know, an oral history with a social justice lens. It's like, you know, how would, how would people in power, people not in power, write history differently? You know, kind of addressing that and kind of thinking, well, well, who writes history, right? It's quote unquote, the winners, you know, the people that are writing about the good war and the greatest generation. But we all know that uh, it's much more complex and, and a lot deeper. And there's a lot of injustice that's been smoothed, smoothed over and smothered. Um, and so oral history, I think, is a great way to kind of share, share through first-person accounts um, ideas and information and an, under, an understanding of a time period or an event that is totally incomplete without first-person accounts. Mm -hmm. And so I think oral history kind of addresses addresses that inequity in terms of what history gets reported and what doesn't and who makes it. I, I think one of your books, maybe this book begins with Brecht, a worker reads history. I think it's uh, the power of the story. Yeah, the power of the story. Okay. I knew that one of your books um, pulls on Brecht's uh, where, where he basically says, who built the pyramids? Was it the, the pharaohs or, you know, to that effect. Um, and that's very in the spirit of, of uh, the work you do. Let's talk a minute about Katrina and then I want to pivot to a couple different ideas. Sure. Well, I, th I think one of the interesting things about that chapter in the book about relocated is that um, the, the creator of that particular project, the, the originator, um, was kind of looking at this idea and wanting to explore through oral history. It's like people tended to think that around Hurricane Katrina, all the stories of relocation or all the, uh, you know, the story began with the hurricane and ended after the hurricane. And his project really sought to kind of go, where does this story really begin? And where does this, you know, and it's kind of unending stories because oral history projects never really end. They just kind of go on and on because um, the story keeps, keeps moving. Um, but it also in that particular project, um, he really was looking at ideas of relocation and the folks that he interviewed for the project didn't consider themselves as being relocated. Mm -hmm. They had a, a very different stance they had a very different relationship to that term and they're like you keep saying that we're relocated but that's that's not how we see ourselves and so i think he had a real interesting kind of eye-opening experience around that about you know terminology and referencing and identifying and, and the power we make and the, yeah the assumption and the power in naming what something is or who somebody is or what what term describes you um and i think that was one of the fascinating things about that particular chapter in the book and i think with all the chapters, one of the things that Claire and I were really striving for is to make space for the folks who contributed these field reports to, to sort of share out and share back on things that didn't work so well, things they learned throughout the process, things that were, you know, complicated and difficult and, and very complex in ways that they had not anticipated at all when they started the project, because we wanted to make sure that these field reports would, would be something somebody could learn from. As opposed to, oh, I did this. This went beautifully. This all worked. You know, everybody wanting to present themselves in the you know the best way possible, right. and 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 these field reports have kind of you know the warts and all of mm -hmm. of of what happens sometimes in an oral history project. And also, Cliff and I each did a chapter, which was a really fun thing for us because Cliff and I realized when we were working on this. We teach about oral history all the time, but it's been a while since we've really done it. You know, like our own project and gone out and done these interviews. And, and so we each did one as well. And I thought that that was a really, um, it was just an important part of the process for me is, is to be in it at the same time as we were shepherding these other uh, writers and oral historians through their processes too. 
Yeah. You know, as, as you're talking, the one thing that's coming to my mind is this question of who gets to name it, but also the question of where does the story begin and where does it end? You know, as a person who's been tagged as a person of the 60s, I always object. I always say, you know, I don't remember anybody looking at their watch on December 31st, 1969 and saying, oh, shit, it's almost over. Nobody lives by chunks like that, right? And so I'm as much a person of the 40s, 50s as I am of the 60s, and I'm as much a person of now. Actually, Actually, I'm still living. Amazing. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it, that question of beginning and ending, you must know um, the Haitian uh, historian, um, and the book is called Silencing the Past. Do you know that book, Silencing the Past? I do not. You've got to look it up. I, I, his name is escaping me, but I just saw the documentary, and you must see the documentary by Raul Peck called Exterminate All the Brutes. And he draws on three um, historians, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, uh, the American historian Sven Lindqvist, um, and this Haitian historian whose last name is, I believe, Trollet. Um, but but he writes a book called Silencing the Past, and he begins the book with the Alamo. What's the beginning of that story? Where does it go? It, 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 we, we learn it as this chunk that has all the meaning that, uh, that people want it, that power wants it to have, or the discovery of America. Where does it begin? Where does it end? Who gets to decide? And I think you all spend a tremendous amount of wisdom and energy disrupting that notion that there that history has these chunks that are understandable and locked in stone yes that they're that they're monolithic you know exactly. everybody from the 60s was like this exactly <laughs> exactly uh there's that and then and then there's the notion i mean it's it's everybody's like this but it's also it becomes when you think about power and how it wants to use history and you note that in florida and arizona the legislatures passed laws that said, for example, in Florida, history shall be taught as facts that they're provable and replicable. And I mean, you're just, you know, you're a, a waterfall of craziness over that kind of statement, right? I mean, just the facts, the facts of what? The facts of a, of a you know, genuine explorer in the, in the pay of Castilian royalty. I mean, what are we talking about, you know? Yeah. And what substantiates a fact in any case. Yeah, exactly. And and the and the fact that, for example, when I grew up in in the sixties, sorry, fifties and sixties, um, uh, you know, we were taught slavery as a pretty much a benign, um, you know, wrong, but but not all that bad institution. But that was long before all the oral history was in place. Now you can't possibly tell the story of the era of slavery without oral accounts. I mean, it's just, it's wrong ethically and it's wrong historically. I mean, it makes no sense intellectually. Yeah, I think of the the, the Florida, you know, case with like, we're just going to be teaching the facts, you know, the provable facts. And it's like, it gets even thornier because a lot of what has been codified and written down as fact was based on oral sources <laughs> and oral and oral testimony and first person accounts. So it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. But it also was written down, not just from oral accounts, but it was written down by some accounts in order to prove some or, or to justify something. So the Alamo is a, is a great case in point. You know, the Alamo, as we reify it in American history, has nothing to do with what happened um, and, and the long-term effect of it. But because we've used it as a symbol of American greatness, um, it's locked in stone, but but it's untrue. Yeah, or, or, or Teddy Teddy Roosevelt and the yeah. Rough Riders, you know, charging up San San Juan Hill, and what exactly. a what a great feat of bravery and conquest that yeah, was. Exactly. Well, the other part of your project, Cliff, that you and that you talk about is that you have a um, a teaching project, an educational project. So the books is one part. Talk a bit about the other part. Yeah, I think a lot of what we've been talking about, um, talking about representation, talking about agency, talking about editing, talking about building relationships and trust, uh, these are all things that we practice and share through the education program um, for classrooms and communities and advocacy organizations and people who are part of movements and movement builders to share this methodology and to share this approach in order to center more voices um, that need to be heard, 
whether that's within a school culture, an academic culture, a community culture. It's just like, what are the, what are the practices? What are the ways of being? And what are the skills um, and the process of oral history? And how can this serve, this process serve um, all these different communities that have all these different needs? You know, for example, an oral history project, as you know, like within a classroom is a very democratizing experience and can have a positive impact on the culture of a classroom or a school. And kind of using that same idea and that same idea writ large and applied to a community or a movement or how, how this process can serve an advocacy organization. So those stories can you know, really be, uh, be impactful you know, in, a, in a variety of different ways. And so the education program is, is operating within um, classrooms, communities, organizations, nonprofits, um, that really see the, uh, the usefulness of, of our oral history methodology um, in, in, in these varieties of settings, in addition to more traditional kind of curriculum and curriculum building and kind of using oral history and first person accounts to dive into issues, you know, around migration or the criminal justice system. Because for a student, you know, a point of entry into an issue is not necessarily with data and percentage points and graph charts. It's the impact of a personal story and a personal experience. And it's like, oh, wow, my, my, my thinking is very complicated all of a sudden. Mm. I thought I kind of knew what I felt about immigration issues. And now after reading these stories, I don't know what to think, like in the best possible way. Can you give an example from a, a group of movement builders or a community organization that you've worked with to teach them the oral history methodology and how it's worked in terms of their efforts to build the movement? Yeah, there's different there's different approaches and, and people have different, um, you know, utilize and harness the stories in different ways. Um, but for example, um, we have a community partnership coordinator at Voice of Witness. Uh, her name is Ella Banerjee. Um, and she nurtures and develops relationships and partner and partnerships with organizations that are connected to our narrator communities, the communities where this, our stories are coming from, from the book. An example would be um, uh, our book from a couple of years ago called Solito Solita, um, you know, focusing on the stories of, of youth refugees uh, from Central America uh, and partnering with an organization here in California, East Bay called the East Bay Sanctuary Covenant and using the stories and the process in the book and the narrators, uh, a couple of the narrators who are now local, bringing them to partner with members of the East Bay Sanctuary Covenant to encourage them to tell their stories in a variety of ways. Like whether it's going to traveling to Washington to, to testify you know, and what it's like to share your story and what this process is like and, and how, you know, the, the vulnerability, but also the power in it. And so that's just one example of kind of connecting the stories in the book to other, other kinds of movements. I want to pivot, <clears throat> Claire, to two things about your work. Uh, one is you're a poet, um, and I'm curious to know, I, frankly, I find a lot of your work in Voice of Witness to be poetry. Um, but I'm curious if your training as a poet and your practice as a poet, um, how it impacted you as an oral historian or as a teacher um, and how it worked its way in. Well, Cliff can tell you that what it means is my training as a poet to focus on every single word means that I'm a very slow writer. <laughs> of course. <laughs> because I can't help but edit every everything I write as I go. So that's, that's one impact. Um, I think language is so important to me and and just the the um the impact of word pairings and line breaks and tone and and all of those things and i and i find that you know with a lot of students who maybe um have felt alienated or not supported by um a more traditional curriculum when you come in with arts-based curriculum that they can be enlivened. So that was that was really fun, and and both in teaching in the prisons and you know going to different high schools and universities with Cliff, um, and I I just think that it's a a really cool thing to be able to weave into curriculum, um, poetry, and also just the arts in general, and just ha allowing people to create. Um, so those are those are some of the ways that I think that it has manifested in me as a, you know, when it comes to being a teacher um, and just what I appreciate about poetry in general too. 
You know, I also mentioned at the beginning that you're the mitigation specialist with the Georgia Capitol Defenders. I'd love you to for you to talk a little bit about that work and whether oral history has helped you in that work in any way. It has helped me in such profound and concrete ways. And it's so funny how often I'm doing my job now and I'm thinking about how many of the same principles that guide my work uh, are the same principles that we use at Voice of Witness. And so uh, what to back up a little bit, um, uh, what a mitigation specialist does is um, in the American Bar Association in their guidelines um, specify that people who are facing the death penalty are entitled to a capitally trained legal team. Uh, and so that, that includes at least two um, capital attorneys and there's a fact investigator and then there's a mitigation specialist. Mm -hmm. And my, my specific background is, is in social work um, in that capacity, but, and a lot of people who do my work have back, similar backgrounds. Um, and so the idea is that the mitigation specialist's job is to meet with the client and get to know the client over a period of years um, with regular conversations and um, just really kind of deeply getting to know the client and also getting to know the client's family and community and sort of everything about his or her life. Um, it, it involves deep records collection. So we get records from schools, hospitals, jails, uh, anywhere where the, the client may have had any sort of record. And we comb through those records and we find in those records, sometimes we find really interesting facts. Like we may find, you know, that somebody, one of the clients um, saved someone's life uh, at, you know, in some, in some capacity. And then we'll, and then we'll find that name and go interview that person. And all of this leads to a comprehensive life history. So uh, often it culminates in us writing a social history of the person's life that the goal of which is to, I always, I hesitate both in my work and in, and, and in oral history just to say humanize that it's so commonly used in, in the legal profession, but um, it seems to me to assume that the person isn't a human or- Exactly. Yes. I, I, have, I have difficulty with it myself, right? Mm -hmm. But I think to, to highlight the complexity of, of human existence, maybe. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when we were talking about using the word narrator and how it, it versus interview subject and how it can really just kind of pigeonhole someone in, into one particular identity, we all know that when people are facing uh, capital charges, they, they definitely have been pigeonholed into one identity. And the, the prosecution and often society and often the media portrays them as a person charged with murder or a person who's harmed a police officer or something along those lines. And so my job is to really tell their whole story. And it's the same thing, birth to now. Like, what was their childhood like? What sort of strengths do they have? What, you know, what childhood pictures can I show that might, you know, elicit some sort of emotion? What, what traumas did they endure? What mental illnesses have they dealt with in their life and all of that um hope is is done with the hope of leading a judge a district attorney or a jury to determine a sentence less than death mm. yeah i have to consult you because i'm teaching at stateville prison in illinois and um my students are writing uh memoirs and they're writing their educational autobiographies and and a lot of what you're saying just resonates so strongly with me and one of the things I love about teaching these folks, and I'm sure you have this experience, these guys aren't taking classes to check a box. They have a much bigger goal than just checking a box and getting a degree. So um, I, what you're saying resonates with me and also inspires me. And, and in fact, your work, this book and your work has inspired me for a long, long time. So I'm so delighted to talk to you. I, you know, I mentioned, um, a book for Cliff called Silencing the Past. I haven't been able to Google it and find the author, but I, I highly recommend it. And at the risk of being totally professorial, um, 
which I am. Uh, <laughs> you know, I am a professor. It's one of their identities. <laughs> I know. I can't help it. I can't help it. But a professor that, from the '60s. <laughs> exactly. All the all those stereotypes. But I can't help but m- mention a book to you, and you may already know it, Claire. Uh, Sadia Hartman's book, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments. Do you know this book? I don't know this book. Well, the reason it popped into my mind, one of the features we have on this podcast is called Book of Books. And what we try to do is assemble uh, a reading autobiographies moving forward. What do you have to read to be more educated, more engaged, more a better citizen, a more moral person? And we do this all the time. But I'm saying this book to you, Claire, for a very specific reason, which is you were talking about consulting you know, parole reports and police reports and social work reports and so on. And what Sadia Hartman does is she goes into the records at Bedford Hills Prison, among other places, um, and she finds the records of black women from the South who around the turn of the last century, and she reads their official police reports and their official social work reports and so on. And then she writes what she calls speculative history. She writes, um, she writes accounts of their lives that gives them agency, that doesn't see them as victims, doesn't see them as criminals, doesn't see them. I mean, they may be breaking the laws, but doesn't see them as that. That's not their whole identity. I think you would find this book just staggeringly brilliant. And the introduction alone is, is worth the book. Um, Sadia Hartman, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments. This is the, the second time I've written down a book recommendation and the last two times I've talked to you. So I know. I, this is my problem. Claire, I, I, I'm embarrassed because it's, it's fitting my stereotype horribly. I love um, it. Keep them coming. <laughs> okay. Listen, uh, I'm going to let us all go back to um, our, our work and our lives, but I can't thank you enough for spending this time and mainly for the unbelievably important work you're each doing and how much it means to me that you're doing it. So thank you for being here and thank you for what you do right back at you bill yeah thank you bill thank you claire nice to see you you. yeah both of you we're getting out to california soon cliff so i'm gonna holler at you and maybe we'll get to have a coffee all right hit me up anyway thank you both and i i will see you soon let's find a reason to do it again soon absolutely thank you all right take care everybody Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends at the Dazzling Podcast Ergo and to Malik Aleem, producer, co-conspirator, friend, comrade, engineer. Under the Tree is hosted and written by Bill Ayers. Theme music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morello. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Under the Tree wherever you listen to podcasts. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life an unruly spark of meaning-making energy. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.